It's a familiar and even frightening scene. A king is seated on the throne, and all the people are gathered in front of that throne, a gathering so big it seems like the whole world is in attendance. And the king begins to separate the crowd into two groups, some to the right of the throne and others to the left. To those on the right, the king offers words of blessing. Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Now the people at the right hand of the throne are confused. When did we do these things for you? They can't remember. And what is it that they can't remember? They can't remember doing such things for the king. They did feed the hungry and gave the thirsty something to drink. They welcomed the stranger and gave clothing to the naked. They took care of the sick and visited the prisoner. They remember all of those things. But they don't remember doing them for the king. So the king offers them words of assurance and explanation. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then the scene is repeated with the king, this time speaking to those standing to the left of the throne. Only this time the king speaks words of doom. You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Well, the people on the left of the throne are confused. When did we fail to do these things for you? They can't remember. And what is it that they can't remember? They can't remember seeing the king in such need. Because if they had, certainly they would have responded. All they can remember is seeing other people hungry and thirsty and unwelcomed and naked and sick and in prison. And the poor would always be with them, just part of the scenery of day-to-day living, unnoticeable and unnoticed, not my problem, not my people. But if we'd seen the king in trouble, well, we'd have acted, but we never saw the king in trouble. When did we see you in that much trouble, they ask. The king replies, truly I tell you, Just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so the ones at the throne's right hand go on to their reward, and the ones at the throne's left hand go off to receive their doom, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal punishment. It's a familiar story. It's a hard story. It's a scary story, a a story that motivates us to do what we need to in order to stand on the right side of the throne. The last story that Jesus tells in Matthew's gospel. It's his last story to his disciples, to the crowds that are following him. Told just before the end. Kind of like Jesus' last will and testament. A story that sticks with us even when we forget all the others. A story to haunt our dreams. Now our gospel reading for this morning comes from the so-called Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that Matthew places near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And in the sermon, Jesus is drawing castles in the air for the benefit of the crowds. He invites them to use their imagination as he tells them what the kingdom of God looks like. He tells them about the people who inhabit that kingdom and the way they live. 
He describes a kingdom guided by love and sacrifice, a community which seeks to live according to the Spirit, a community that's miles away from the kingdoms of this world and yet has something important to say to those kingdoms by way of invitation and witness and judgment, a kingdom that even the poorest members of the crowd could envision because it had a place for them, because as he describes this kingdom, Jesus does not begin by describing the king and his court, but speaks instead of the meek, the lowly, the sad, the brokenhearted, the peacemaker, all of whom have their place in the kingdom, a kingdom that's ruled by justice and mercy together, not by the sword or the strength of human hands. Castles in the sky, somewhere over the rainbow, but also right here, before their very eyes, the kingdom of God come among them. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers how to live as citizens of that kingdom, how to behave as participants in that kingdom, in the reign of God. And so our text for this morning begins with a call away from idolatry. Jesus calls his followers to give themselves over to the only true God, because you cannot worship both the false God and the real God. Uh, not that the false God cares all that much who else you worship, but the real God the God whom Jesus calls Father, that God cares very much who you worship. No one can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, or you love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, uses a tamer word, wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. But I prefer mammon with a capital M, like it's a subject, a proper noun, an entity. A false god. I prefer the word mammon because I think it makes clear that what Jesus is condemning or warning against here is idolatry. A false god made of gold and silver. Mammon. A god that promises much. A god that is unworthy of our devotion. Mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now mammon has a powerful hold on us human beings. Even us enlightened 21st century Mennonites run the risk of becoming Mammonites. I couldn't resist that, I'm sorry. There's nothing quaint or ambiguous, really, about Jesus' warning. Nothing that requires a big imaginative leap from his context to ours. Mammon is alive and well long after all those other phony gods, Baal and Ashtaroth and Caesar Augustus, went moldering in the grave. We know the power that old false god still has, how it tempts us to accumulate, to protect, to hoard, to calculate how it lures us into believing that we can compartmentalize our lives, that we can serve God and trust God and, and love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, all the while pursuing another almighty one, the almighty dollar. Mammon wheedles its way into our spirits, asking for just a little more room, please, and all of our wishes will come true. Worship mammon, give yourself to mammon, place your trust in mammon, and you will never lack for anything. You will be secure from all harm, you will be at peace from here until the day you die. No worries. Mammon will provide all your needs according to its riches on Wall Street. Abide in mammon. Trust in mammon. Place your life in mammon's hands. And then give whatever's left over to any other god you may choose, just so long as you remember who's your real daddy, your real father, your real god. We know it's Paul. That old false god, mammon. We see how it runs our lives, how it determines our prospects, how it limits us or sets us free, how it can come and go on a whim, altogether untrustworthy, taking us from rags to riches and then back again, calling to us 
like the sirens called Ulysses, inviting us to follow it all the way to our own death, only to discover that we really cannot take it with us because mammon's power ends at death. Its potency vanishes. And all those barns and bigger barns that we built to hold it all in, all those little chapels of mammon, they're all for naught once we close our eyes for the last time. Mammon drops us off at the grave and then walks away. And even those of us who know mammon for what it is, an idol, a false god, even we find ourselves in one way or another serving mammon. We need mammon to buy food, to buy clothing, to pay the water bill, to buy medication, to pay our taxes, to support our lifestyles, to fill the offering plate. So even those of us who know better than to offer ourselves to mammon, even those of us who resist mammon's call to worship, even those of us who know the dangers of idolatry, even we must have regular contact with mammon and its minions. We can't walk away from mammon. Our politics and the entire global economy are devoted to and dependent upon mammon. Mammon's everywhere we turn. It's omnipresent. Mammon runs the world. It's omnipotent, or at least as close to it as a false god can get. It sets the course of nations. It pretends to be omniscient, with economists as its priests proclaiming its sublime mysteries in worshipful tones and inviting us all to wonder at mammon's mighty deeds. We hear of the market, yet another capital M, and of its wisdom and its inevitabilities and its essential goodness and how it must be allowed to roam freely among us, working its way and must not be restrained or in any way hindered and how its freedom is essential to world peace and human happiness. Mammon's everywhere we turn. It's impossible to avoid, which makes the call away from idolatry all the more difficult, even after Jesus goes on to reveal just how foolish it is to place our trust in mammon. Because, Jesus says, mammon is entirely untrustworthy. Why do you worry so much about having your daily needs met? Isn't it because mammon has so often failed to deliver just those things? I mean, life is more than food and clothing. But that's something that mammon doesn't understand. But God knows that. And who feeds the birds? Who clothes the flowers? Does mammon do these things? No. God does these things. And if God provides food for the birds and, the clothing, for the, and clothing for the lilies of the field, don't you think God can do the same for you? And why do you have to wonder where tomorrow's food's going to come from or tomorrow's drink or tomorrow's clothing? Mammon is clearly not up to the job. Mammon does not keep its promises. Mammon is not as powerful as its wizards would have you believe. But God knows what you need, and God will keep promises, and God will see to it that you're cared for, and not just here on earth, but always and forever. So worship God, place your trust in God, have faith in God, seek to follow God's way, and all will be well with you. So don't worry about tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, because unlike that old idol mammon, God will be with you then, too, and even beyond the grave. Well, now comes the hard part, the, heart, the part where we um, admit that it often seems as if God is not living up to the promises made by Jesus, the part where we admit that we often find mammon to be more reliable than the God of Abraham, Sarah, Rebecca, and Jacob. We consider our own circumstances and it's so much easier for us to track the benefits of mammon than it is to track the benefits we receive from God. We get monthly statements telling us how good mammon has been to us. We duly log the inflow and outflow of mammon. 
we spend a lot of our waking hours thinking about and keeping track of and taking care of mammon. And sometimes, perhaps as a result of our own piety, we get the two mixed up, the the false God and the real God. And, And so we attribute to God all the blessings that came our way by mammon and so buy into that old prosperity gospel. Sometimes we feel the need to hedge our bets under the guise of good stewardship, stowing away our riches for a rainy day, just in case God fails to provide an ark. We consider the lives of our faithful sisters and brothers in other parts of the world and see how their lives are diminished by poverty. And we wonder what happened to God's promises to feed and to clothe. Meanwhile, mammon keeps on wreaking havoc and making their circumstances more miserable while simultaneously enriching us, making us feel guilty and grateful all at the same time. Now comes the hard part, the part about what it means to place ourselves fully into God's hands, what it means to place our trust in God, what it means to become a citizen of the reign of God, a reign founded on the worship of the one true God, a reign founded on a theology that describes God as someone who loves all people and insists that we do the same, a kingdom founded on justice for the poor and blessings for the peacemaker and welcome for the stranger, and love for the lost and forsaken, a kingdom in which the last are made first, and where no one eats alone, a kingdom, a reign that seasons the world around it, drawing out the goodness already in it by virtue of being made in God's own image, a kingdom, a reign, a community that responds to God's generosity by being generous toward others, that responds to God's promise to provide all of our needs by seeking to meet each other's needs, a community that sees a hungry sister and feeds her, that sees a thirsty brother and gives him a drink, that sees a naked child and clothes him, that sees a stranger and extends the hand of welcome, that sees a woman in great pain and cares for her, that sees a man behind bars and goes to visit him, a kingdom, a reign, a community, which by its very nature both reveals the promises of God and then makes those promises come to pass through acts of generosity, mercy, love, and grace. A kingdom, a reign, a community through which God keeps every promise. A kingdom, a reign, a community guided by the impulse to see that all are fed, that all are given water, that all are clothed. An impulse so alien, so alien that it's considered dangerous, naive, and maybe even traitorous by the rich and the powerful disciples of mammon. An impulse, however, that calls us to our best selves, that calls us to become perfect as God is perfect, an impulse which carries us not only through the troubles of today, but all the way to death and beyond. A kingdom, a reign, a community whose relationship to mammon is transformed from a form of idolatry to something more redemptive as the fruit of mammon is distributed more equitably as mammon itself comes under the reign of God a kingdom, a reign, a community, actively participating in the redeeming of mammon as through the power of the Holy Spirit, mammon learns to bend its knee in the presence of God. And so, as promised, another power is being changed, reborn with a new and just relationship to the God who's redeeming all through Christ. A community that's not daunted by the necessity of that relationship to mammon, but sees in that relationship an opportunity to discover again and again what it means to say that all things are reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Like those saints standing on the right hand of the throne, 
We don't fret about figuring out who deserves our care, who deserves our comfort, who deserves to be fed and clothed and offered a safe and warm and dry place to be. We don't ask for ID in the kingdom of God. We don't distinguish between those who can offer us something in return, following the calculations that we learned in our days under mammon, but instead open our hands to all, welcoming all, feeding all, clothing all, serving all, and inviting all to come in from the cold world where mammon reigns into the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the community of God. We trust that the end of things is in God's hands and that we don't need to or get to determine when and where all things will be made whole, freeing us from yet another set of calculations, all of that bottom line stuff that mammon holds so dear. We don't worry, in other words, because we can see God's reign. We can see God's reign coming in every act of generosity, every gesture of peace, every hand offered in welcome, every step toward our enemies, every plate, every cup, every shirt, every time we gather together in the beloved community. That's where we're headed, sisters and brothers. I wish we were there right now. I wish we were already perfect in our mercy, in our love, in our welcome, in our ability to forgive. I wish we were perfect in our generosity and in our compassion and in our desire to serve. I wish we were perfectly free of mammon's grip, but we're not yet perfect. Not yet. Still, we are headed that way. We're learning how to place ourselves entirely in God's hands, to commit ourselves entirely to God's purposes, to understand ourselves as belonging entirely to God's reign, to practice becoming more and more and more like Jesus with every step we take. We're learning. We're learning to become the kind of people who, when told that we fed Jesus when he was hungry and clothed Jesus when he was naked and gave a thirsty Jesus a glass of water and welcomed Jesus when he was a stranger and visited Jesus when he was in the hospital or in jail. We're learning to become the kind of folks who cannot remember ever doing such things. Not because we didn't feed and clothe and welcome and serve those in need all around us, but because we did it so often and so faithfully and with so little concern for our own benefit that we forgot to check and see who it was. We were serving, keeping God's promises. That was the goal. It really never occurred to us to figure out who we were serving. So that we served Jesus while we were serving, well, that's a bonus. Like a bouquet of dazzling flowers all decked out in God's finest. A nice surprise at the end of the journey. We served Jesus, and we didn't even know it because it never occurred to us to check his ID because in the reign of God, no ID is required. Amen.